We've been to all four corners of Britain in our quest to interview the great and good of entertainment. Comics, actors, writers, politicians, singers, dancers and choreographers. It doesn't matter who they are. They've all given me their own take on the world they live in and have, in their own way, helped to define what makes Britain great. So join me and my assistants as we get another insight into the marvellous and enigmatic world of showbiz here on Beyond the Title. Making his debut at the Edinburgh Fringe in 1977, writer and comedian Arthur Smith burst onto the comedy circuit as a pioneer of alternative comedy and thus began a lifelong association with the festival which still survives to this day. In the midst of the alternative comedy revolution of the 1980s, Smith became resident MC at the infamous comedy store and presided over future comedy heavyweights, including French and Saunders, Ben Elton, Rick Mail, and Adrian Edmondson. Teaming up with comedy partner Phil Nice in 1985, Smith made a short series of parody documentaries for Channel 4 television network called Arthur and Phil Go Off. In 2000, Arthur landed his own Radio 2 series, The Smith Lectures, celebrating his favourite stand-up comics before providing the voice of the BBC One's Life of Grime in 2004. I caught up with the certified grumpy old man for our very first Beyond the Title live show at the prestigious Museum of Comedy to talk festivals, stand-up and recollections on an unparalleled career in British comedy. Ladies and gentlemen... Mr. Arthur Smith. Equity rules. Not because there was another person called Brian Smith, which is a normal thing, but I think he just did it for the hell of it. There was probably some Brian Smith, but everyone who changes their name, have you noticed, you, you don't know that other Brian Smith. Um, uh, or usually. Um, but anyway, so the, to understand Arthur Smith, you have to understand the Brian Smithness of Arthur Smith. But really, probably to understand uh, Arthur, Brian Smith, you have to understand uh, Arthur, the other way around. You understand where I'm coming from. Yes, yes, it kind of works, but it, it's true, because it's like a secret that he's actually Brian. And I, I suppose in his real life he's Brian. Is he, what's he after to everyone? I don't know. Anyway, um, Arthur Smith is a legend. Is uh, the first person, I believe, from our comedy scene in Britain who did uh, his show, Tout en Francais, all in French, in Paris. Before I got there, uh, I w was I even doing stand-up at that time? I'm not sure. But, um, so I'm just traveling in his way, because maintenant I do my show in French, Tout en Francais, uh, all in French. Um, I do an hour or so, I do an hour and a half. Crazy, because once you start, you can just, you can just translate your own stuff into French, because people thought there was a problem. But he must have worked that out. Uh, it isn't, uh, if anyone knows, it's, 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 uh, you just swap your stuff over into, into French. It's only references that will trip you up. If you're talking about curly wordies all the time, they won't swing with that because they don't know what a curly word is. But you can explain it. But anyway, he must have worked that out. Or he just went for it. He went for that in that Arthur Smith way that he could, could and can, could do and can do. Yes, same verb ending. Um, and the tours of, uh, of Edinburgh, the Edinburgh Festival tours, which just so amazing, the live tours through, through the streets, his performances, he's just always been a maverick. He's like someone from the film Top Gun, um, which is about to come out quite soon. So maverick, I think maverick in Top Gun was based on Arthur Smith. I think we need to say no more than that. <laughs> Arthur Smith, Enigma, 
legend, star. Arthur is one of the coolest comedians and coolest people of all time. Fact. Arthur and I go back a long way because we're both really quite old. We became mates in Norwich University, did funny stuff with other dear friends there, and then after with our very own National Review Company. In the early 80s, he and I formed a double act called Fiasco Job Job, which made enough people laugh for us to get our own series of comedy travelogue documentaries on Channel 4. Arthur and Phil go off. Then it seemed time for us to go off our own separate ways. We may have only attained cult status as a comedy duo, but our long friendship has endured. Arthur is an incorrigibly messy, highly creative and very funny man. I think that's all he told me to say. There we go. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon. Welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. Right, Rob, before we get on to our highly esteemed guest, firstly, just let me introduce both myself and what Beyond the Title is. I'll introduce myself first. My name is Phil Reed. I'm a stand-up comedian. Uh, however, obviously, yeah, I say stand-up comedian. I'm an international stand-up comedian, my friend. Yes, I've been to both Scotland and Wales, which is nice. But yeah, so there we go. And obviously, so I'll, but for the next hour or so, I'm going to be the voice of Beyond the Title and Josh Barry, right? And, and with that as well, I'm going to introduce you to Josh Barry, ladies and gents. So Josh Barry's just down here. So a very good afternoon to you, Josh. There we go. The man behind Beyond the Title, and he's been running the Beyond the Title podcast for five years. And today is actually the fifth year anniversary, ladies and gentlemen. So a great milestone. And what a way to kick it off as well. He's interviewed over a hundred of the most prominent figures in Britain, from Jimmy Tarbuck to Baroness Tanny Gray Thompson. Josh, as you can see as well, has cerebral palsy, uh, which makes his speech indifficult, uh, and obviously some unwanted movements as well, which is obviously the public speaking side is why I'm doing it on his behalf, ladies and gents. So, obviously with that as well, Josh has prepared all the questions for today's interview, and I'm going to try and deliver them to the best of my ability on Josh's behalf. So, are we all right with that, ladies and gents? Yeah. Right, okay, well then, without further ado, let's all kick it off then, ladies and gents, right? This is our first live show, and what better way to kick off Beyond the Title live tour than with a bona fide comedy stalwart, ladies and gents, ladies and gents, what can I say about him? Well, he burst on to the alternative comedy circuit in the 90s, 1980s as a comedy MC at the infamous comedy store here in London, ladies and gents. We've been to the comedy store before? Yeah. Uh, he became the resident MC in 1985 and making his debut at the Edinburgh Fringe in 1977. And our guest began a lifelong association with the festival, which still survives to this day. Have we been to the Edinburgh Festival? Yeah, so we know, obviously, how strong it's going as well. And then, obviously, on TV, he teamed up with comedy partner Phil Nice, who you heard in the intro, ladies and gents, in 1985 for a short series of parody documentaries for Channel 4 called Arthur and Phil Go Off. And yet, on the radio, he's become a bit of a comedy giant presenting everything from Loose Ends to his very own Radio 2 series, The Smith Lectures, celebrating his favourite stand-ups or his stand-up comics. But ironically, despite all these credits, ladies and gents, and despite everything that he's done, it becomes obviously a little bit of a bitter blow that he'll probably only be best known as, as the voice of the BBC One's Life of Grime and Money for Nothing. 
But above all that, he remains a renowned authority on live comedy, ladies and gents. And I can tell you now, it genuinely gives me such honour. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage, Mr. Arthur Smith. Good afternoon, Mr. Smith. Get comfortable. We've got you a coffee. We've got you a coffee. Yeah, good afternoon, everyone. Are you real human beings? Yes. Yeah. Do you, do you sweat? Yeah. Do you fart? <laughs> Excellent. Do you wank? <laughs> Maybe not during this afternoon, perhaps. <laughs> what a way to kick off. Right. <laughs> um, obviously, like most writers, Arthur, you started early. And didn't you write a version of Peter Pan, Captain Hook uh, at school? Is that correct? <laughs> <coughs> I did indeed. And can you uh, remember? Sorry. Yeah, no, no, I do remember. I must have been, uh, I must have been about eight years old or something. I was at junior school, and we had a teacher called Miss Marshall who was Canadian. This is in Bermondsey, and uh, she came in one day and announced that our class was going to do a version of Peter Pan uh, in front of the school. Uh, the uh, Christmas or something, and I was really excited by this idea. So that night when I went home, I wrote my version of Peter Pan, uh, which clearly, when delivered to Miss Marshall the next morning, was unperformable, I imagine. I don't know what it was. But anyway, she said, well, never mind, but you can play any part you want. So obviously I went for uh, Captain Hook, uh, and my mum made me, you know, got me a little coat hanger for my hand and everything. And then on the big first night, <laughs> or first afternoon, I came on with my hook, determined to frighten the shit out of everybody. <laughs> but, as you may guess, they all started laughing. <laughs> and the more I went around trying to terrorise people with my hook, the more they carried on laughing. And it was at that point, though, I thought, oh, yeah, laughing, that's quite good. Yeah, I think I'd rather make people laugh than frighten them. So uh, that's sort of, I was thinking of that as uh, my second ever gig, in a way, because there was another one a year earlier where two girls in my class, this is when I was about six or seven, offered me threepence to show them my willy. <laughs> uh, which I did, obviously, for the money. And I always think of that as my first professional engagement. So, have you always had a desire to be funny from a young age? I think I did. I think uh, I think I realised that I was always a bit of a show-off somehow, you know. I was. I never minded, you know, if there was someone who said someone at school, who wants to come up and say, you know, I'd always go up and do it. So, uh, and I realised as well, it's a good way to make friends, you know. Was it Victor Borger said, laughter is the shortest distance between two people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that, that, that it's a good thing to, it's, an, it's a strangely human thing, isn't it? I don't know many, you know, like insects who laugh or, uh, <laughs> but it's a very human thing somehow, isn't it? And I think it, you know, it's a way of trying to understand in the ludicrous world that we live in is to laugh at it. Yeah, definitely. Otherwise, you just end up crying. <laughs> and of course, as well, in the interview, in, in, in sorry, yeah, in the I was pleased there, by there. Hello, Phil. I did. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, I, I said, please welcome Arthur Smith. But yeah. as we found out when we just learned from Eddie Izzard that uh, your name isn't actually Arthur. No, my well, my full name is Brian Arthur John Smith. 
and uh, Brian is what, you know, Phil will call me Brian. Old friends, you know, my partner, my family all still call me Brian. Uh, but when we, we, you, you had to join equity to perform uh, publicly when I was in, which was, must have been in my 20s. And so I said, yeah, I like Eddie said, I'd be Brian Smith. But they said there really was one. And um, I put, I had two choices. One of them I put down, I know, I thought this would be funny because uh, I had to pick a new name. And I uh, went for um, Captain Wanker, was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then my second choice, because it was my middle day, was Arthur Smith. And, uh, but fortunately, I don't know, I think there already was a Captain Wanker. I don't know. <laughs> but either way, they said they went with uh, Arthur rather than uh, Captain Wanker. But I mean, yeah, I'm still Brian to a lot of people. And if I get to know you very well at some point, it's a bit embarrassing. Well, you might as well call me Brian now, which is, uh, it's funny uh, having uh, two names. But uh, it's a bit like they're slightly different, you know. Arthur is the public one. But it, when I was growing up, Arthur was like a comedy name. It was like a big joke, Arthur. And I, and I actually was known as Arthur at, at school. And I used to write a, a column in the school magazine called The Arthur Corner. So I've always been a bit Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you've answered the other question. I was going to say, why Arthur? But obviously, with it being your middle name, which, uh, and for obviously, was it for equity reasons as well? Yeah, Maybe. yeah, that's right. Because you had to kind of to perform though, in those days. You had to be a member of equity, which uh, I don't think you do anymore. And Arthur, though, it's funny. There's loads of Arthurs now, aren't there? Lots of kids. It's funny how names yeah. go in and out of fashion, don't they? You know, you don't get many purses anymore, do you? <laughs> Keith, that's gone. Keith, is no Keiths? No, I don't think that's good. Gary, think. any Garys anymore? What about women's names? <laughs> Are there, what, what do you, you say you don't get any, my mother's middle name was Nora. You don't meet many Noras these days, do you? Yeah, my middle name's Reginald, and I don't know many. Really? Re yeah, Reggie, you, you get quite a lot of Reggies. Oh but. yeah, Reggie, Reginald D. Hunter. Yeah. Reggie, what other Reggies can we Re know? Reggie Cray, Reggie Cray. Reggie Cray, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, we, well, we'll draw a yeah, yeah. bail over that part of my career. <laughs> as you know as well, there's uh, been a lot written about you, obviously, in the degrees of, somewhat obviously with degrees of truth, but is it true that you discovered Eddie Izzard? And do you remember the first time you saw Eddie perform? Uh, yeah, he was just hiding under a rock. And I, and I discovered him, and I said, Eddie, you've looked funny. Why don't you go on stage? <laughs> I don't know if I discovered him, to be honest, but I remember when he was starting out. I mean, funny enough, actually, um, Eddie was a bit shit when he started out, <laughs> as I think he probably conceded himself, and it was a bit like, oh, fucking hell, Eddie's on again. But then there was a sort of moment where he just found his voice and he went from being a bit shit to absolutely brilliant overnight. It was funny, there's this not a dissimilar story with um, Jack D, as I understand it, and, and also I think this was a bit the same with Les Dawson. But anyway, Jack, I remember when he started out, he was, he was quite good, but he, you know, he, but he hadn't really found his voice and then he decided he'd had enough and he was going to give up, but he had a few gigs left. So he just went on and did him like, I don't really give a fuck. And his, I don't really give a fuck, turned out to be his perfect voice. <laughs> and the material he was do doing suddenly came alive in a way. Yeah, yeah. 
that's the key thing in stand-up. You, you know, you have to find your own voice. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, I heard that story with Jack Dean. That, that fascinated me as well. Yeah. Like listening, listen, listen, listening to that and the same with Eddie, like you said. I did a gig with uh, Jack at the, the Slapstick Festival a couple of weeks ago. And Jack said uh, he and I were the only two comedians left alive who don't have their own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I guess obviously you know, like you said with Jack D, but you've got a, a lot in common going back to Eddie Izzard, um Is that you've both performed comedy in another language? How yeah. difficult was that to execute? Oh, bah, c'est pas tout à fait difficile parce que moi j'arrive à parler assez bien le français. Alors que enfin, je parle français mieux que Eddie. <laughs> C'est vrai. All right, no, I, I recognise some people may not understand what I'm saying. Well, I, the thing is, I uh, I did I studied uh, I did French as part of my degree, and I spent a, a year in Paris as a an English assistant in a French lycée, which was really one of the most seminal years of my life. And uh, so I spoke French pretty well, and then I just got the opportunity to do it, and I thought, yeah, I'll give it a go. And uh, it was quite interesting. I think I only did about 15 or 20 minutes the first time I did it. And um, and I translated some of my stuff into French. And then I had a, and, you know, I worked up some new material that was particularly relevant to the French. And uh, But the, my own stuff translated didn't really work that well. But the stuff I'd written specifically did work quite well. And I'll tell you one thing I've discovered that no one else in the world knows, not even Eddie Izzard, that, uh, you know, um, animals and birds make different... You know, cows go moo, dogs go woof. Uh, but, of course, this is all different in foreign languages. And a, a cox, right, as in the bird, not... I don't mean speaking penises. Um, <laughs> although that would be a comedy act. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> but the the... The French think that the sound cock-a-doodle-doo is the funniest thing they've ever heard. <laughs> the fact that English people say cocks do cock-a-doodle-doo is fucking hilarious <laughs> if you are French. Also, I learnt that no French person can say Smith's crisps. <laughs> if you want to get a laugh from a French person, unless they're bilingual, of course, just get ask them to say Smith's crisps. <laughs> Any French people here? Est-ce qu'il y a des Français ici? Si vous voulez, je peux faire le, le reste de ce truc en français. Phil could do it in German as well. It's good. It's, it's a wonderful thing to be able to speak another language. It gives you an insight into the into your own language. Yeah, well, I mean, I did French at school, but not, nothing to, to to that extent. Like, I learned bonjour, and then that was it. Probably. Just bonjour, not even au revoir. Oh, yeah, no, on that one. That was as I was leaving the class. He was like, bonjour, <laughs> bonjour. au revoir, that was it. Well, I used to teach uh, I used to teach English to foreign students for a few years, apart from doing it in uh, Paris. You know, it was I had a job, as did Phil. And um, it, was, uh, it was a very interesting experience. That some of them were just there because their parents had paid. And we had one bloke... I remember that a friend of mine had talked for Simon for about three years, and at the end of it, all he could say was "mini cab" and <laughs> and "lager." <laughs> After three years, they were the two words he'd learned. You've also frequently said as well that devising a new stand-up show, you don't need to know what the show is about before you write it. What do you mean by that? 
Well, I mean, that's true of a, of a lot of writing, I think. Is sometimes you'll have an idea, an image, and then you start working on it. And it, uh, at some point, you know, maybe 20 minutes in or 5,000 words in, you start to see what you're kind of getting at. It takes a while. I always remember Arthur Miller, the playwright, who I did I had lunch with him once, <laughs> anyway... Uh, said that uh, he, when he started writing a play, he kind of knew vaguely where it was going, but then after a bit, he'd realised the sort of meat of it, and he'd get a sentence like, you know, I don't know, uh, well, you could think one up for... Uh, uh, and then he'd paste it on his typewriter and sort of remember that, in a sense, that was what he was all, all about. Yeah, and... Um, also, as well, you you were the first part... Um, of the alternative comedy rush as it would be. Uh, in hindsight, did alternative comedy achieve its purpose? Like, Well, I, don't, well you, I think you're better off asking Alexi Sale that, um, uh, which I will do, actually. I'm interviewing Alexi in Tring in a few weeks. But anyway, um, I don't know. Well, I, I, you know, I don't think it was right, this is alternative comedy, here are its rules, this is what we're aiming to do. It was never quite as uh, regimented as that. I mean, I think one of the principal things was, was as a reaction to the comedy that you'd see on the telly at the time, the stand-up, you know, the, with the glittery jackets and the racist jokes and the homophobia and the sexism. We, we were... We were very keen, uh, a, a lot down to Alexi and Tony Allen, who's uh, not mentioned much in this, but, uh, you know, we were very keen to get rid of that side of things. I mean, if you look at some of the routines you saw in the 70s now, you know, with, yeah. so we were like enemies of, uh, of, of that school and they were enemies of us and they hated it when we started doing quite well. And, uh, you know, we were, they always used to have the same joke, alternative, alternative comedy, alternative to comedy. And I remember I did a TV thing once where I, at the start of it, I jumped through a picture of Jim Davidson, sort of <laughs> kind of smashing it as uh, at the start of the thing. Because he, he was a... Funny enough, he and I went to the same uh, primary school. Well, not that I knew him, thank fuck. Because <laughs> <laughs> some might argue that the fact that, you know, many figures of your generation um, that are now very much, of the, very much part of the showbiz establishment, that alternative comedy may now be meaningless. I mean, what's your reaction to that? Well, I like I say, I don't think anyone really knew what, what alternative comedy... What it was, was, that, was that it was a new direction in comedy where it wasn't just a lot of old jokes. It was, you know, there was observation comedy, there was political comedy. I mean, the first time I saw Alexis Sale at the comic strip, I was just kind of blown away that he was doing all this very contemporary material... And, uh, you know, about, I don't know, muesli or... <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> I don't know why muesli came into my head. <clears throat> I don't really like muesli anymore. I used to like it. Gone off muesli. I... Anyone got any porridge? Anyway, <laughs> I got a bit distracted, but then you can do that in comedy. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I don't know what people would say what it is now. I mean, I don't know if it's still a thing. It's, it's, it feels a bit like a kind of fossilised thing. Now you've got, you know, there's so many comedians yeah. now. At the time when alternative comedy started, there were relatively few, you know, of us. There were, you know, you did, there was only a kind of 
about sort of 20 comedians who you could pick from to play the comedy store. I mean, it started getting more people trying out and open spots. But, I mean, now pretty much everyone in the world is a comedian, more or less. So it's... Uh, and so there's a... And also then I think we weren't doing it for the money or to get on telly then, it, which, of course, a lot of people starting out now, that's what their aim is. And therefore you've got some... Fucking ridiculous acts. Looking back on it, there was the you know the, there was the Ice Man who used to melt a block of ice as his act essentially, and then uh, there was oh some ridiculous fucking acts. There was uh, I was trying to remember one Phil the, the, um, the, the woman who used to tear paper. Oh yeah yeah yeah. What was her name? Yeah yeah. She she was uh, and there's a word for that, isn't there? Um, what do you call some? Yeah, <laughs> she was about ninety, wasn't she? As well, there was another. Yeah, yeah, and there, there was a, there was a. I always remember a, a Swedish tap dancer who came on, and it was a carpet, so you couldn't hear him. <laughs> and then there was Sophie Bottleknocker, who used to get the top of bottles of beer open using her tits. <laughs> yeah, which sounds like quite a hard thing to do, and I think it probably was. Oh, yeah, there were all sorts of ridiculous acts you used to see then. It was, there was a, I mean, I've always felt influenced by Dardarism, which some of you will have heard of, which was, uh, it was a kind of precursor to surrealism, and it started in 1915 in Zurich when this bunch of people got together and started doing ridiculous things on stage. You know, they'd have three people telling the same joke in unison. And, uh, oh, they would did... And it was right in the middle of the First World War when everything was kind of hellish, but not in... Switzerland was neutral, so... And a lot of people had fled there. In fact, James Joyce was there uh, as well, and Lenin around that time as well, although I don't think they did comedy. But uh, that would be a double act, wouldn't it? Although Tom Stoppard wrote a play, didn't he, um, around that period. I remember going last time I was in Zurich, which I've done a few gigs there, going to um, Stalin's house and going to the Cabaret Voltaire, it was called. And they used to do shows there and they were just fucking ridiculous. And fucking ridiculous, in a sense, was, you know, eventually became surrealism. But in my head, it's just fucking ridiculous. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I've always felt influenced by Dardarism more than, uh, more than anything else, really. So you've got a... Like, quite oh, clear. that was the other thing, sorry, about so alternative comedy, is that one thing that united all of us is that we all fucking hated Mrs Thatcher. <laughs> Obviously, right. <laughs> yeah. I've got a question about that that we're going to come to a little bit later on. All right, but I was going to obviously you you can quite clearly see that you know you've got so much experience. How do you think that the nature of joke telling has changed over over the you know generations, mm. years, decades? Mm. Well, you, uh, like I say, you don't get so many kind of formal jokes. Although, funny enough, as I've got older, I've grown to love them again. You know, <laughs> yeah. the sort of Barry Cryer stuff. Uh, I might tell you a few later on. I think I'll, I'll do, give you three now. A man goes to the doctor. The doctor says, I'm afraid you're going to have to stop masturbating. Oh, no, says the man. Why? Well, says the doctor, I'm trying to examine you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say the other ones. Uh, but, yes, um, what was the question? I've forgotten. Just like the nature of joke telling? Like through, like, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, but the thing is, there are so many comedians. There are many different styles yeah. of, of comedy. Um, 
and you know, there's the, the you know, if you go to the Edinburgh Fringe, or at least you know, a couple of years ago before the pandemic and whatnot, you could see. 50 shows in seven days that are all in a completely different style. Um, and I think that it's the alternative comedy did get rid of all the racism. And, uh, yeah. But I mean, now there's a more, there's still now a kind of another battle about woke versus not woke and whatnot, which is uh, quite a complicated area. Um, and you know, I'm not sure how much that's affecting comedy at the moment, but it's clearly dividing people uh, a bit. Yeah, I want to talk about obviously going into the comedy store. Like you became the resident MC in like 1985. But what was it about Don Ward's comedy store which provided the platform for like the comedy revolution as it would be to take place? And you know how how involved were Don and Peter Rosengard with the actual content? You know, with the comedy store. Well, I, I think. Um uh, it was Peter Rosengard really was the sort of intellectual behind it because he'd been to America and seen there was a kind of new things coming from America. You know, there was Lenny Bruce and and uh, George Carlin and people like that who were very influential. And um, and and I think Don, who used to run a strip club or something, you know, <laughs> it was the, initially it was in a it was in a strip club, the very first comedy store. Um, you know, it wasn't strippers on during the comedy, obviously, and I didn't do much stripping. Although, <laughs> although to be honest, I had done a bit. Not but, even as Captain <laughs> Wanker. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> but um, I think it was Peter Rosengard who was actually an insurance salesman. I just spoke to him the other day. He still lives up in Notting Hill in a little cupboard there, and. Um, and he, he was the intellectual, and it, it, it was the idea, yeah, with some of these American influences, and like Richard Pryor and that sort of thing, uh, coming at the fore, and it, it was following on in that kind of tradition, and we all fucking hated Thatcher, and we were all against the Falklands War, and I remember at the time, there was nowhere else you'd ever go anywhere where people would start banging on about how they didn't want to invade the Falklands. So there was a political dimension to it as well, which, you know, there still is to a degree. So in 2019 as well, the Comedy Store was not an alternative comedy venue. Right? Apparently, allegedly, it wasn't an alternative comedy venue. What was your reaction to that? What was that? Uh, so in 2019, it was alleged right, that the Comedy Store... By, was, by who? I think it was just obviously written down or whichever, that it wasn't alternative. But again, you know, how, how would you see... Bearing in mind, that was your like kind of revolution along with your... <laughs> as it would be. Well, I mean, I haven't played the comedy store for quite a long time these days. Although, well, I quite fancy doing it again sometime. I'm probably too old now. You know, they don't really have uh, people in their late nineties. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but well, I mean, this is all very well alleged. You know, I've alleged someone alleged that yeah. the vaccine is bad for you. But fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been all over the world observing live comedy. Um, what would you say makes the comedy store so unique? Well, I suppose from the British point of view, it's where, yeah, what, for what, bent, what of a better phrase, alternative comedy started. And it's got a tradition. I mean, that's where, that's the place where, when comedians start out, that's the place they want to play. Yeah. You know, that's what they're aiming to do. Once you've done a gig at the comedy store, I mean, I remember thinking, because I used to do, yeah, I used to MC there, I used to swap a bit. I was one weekend at the comedy store, the next at Battersea, in Jongler's uh, Battersea, which was also another, you know, the venues were springing up at the time, and that was another big one. 
And uh, the comedy said there were two shows at eight, and then the second one started. I think these days it starts at eleven or something. But it started at midnight, so it was kind of wild. It was, in some sense, it was um, it was comedy's answer, you know, response to punk in a sense because they both started about the same time, and. Um, so yeah, the com- well, like the comedy store Los Angeles was yeah. the, f- the the first one, and you know, so I suppose comedy store generally that name uh, evokes a history of comedy and laughter going back, you know, forty years now. And uh, like I say, it's still the the gig that you know when they're starting out. Once you've played there, you've fucking done it. You know, I remember being there once when Robin Williams turned up. Uh, the comedian, because apparently that's what he used to do. Whenever he went any to any new city, he'd always find the most, the biggest comedy club, go down there, coked out of his head, and then uh, and just and volunteer to go on stage. And obviously, obviously, always every son, yeah, Robin Williams, on you go. In fact, wasn't it me and you, yeah. Phil? We were on after him, weren't we? <laughs> so we had Robin Williams as our support act. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't a great night. Uh, no, well, he, he didn't actually do all that well, did he? He was a bit shit holding the microphone. He did better than us. He did better than us, yeah. <laughs> Maybe. I, I, I've drawn a veil over there. <laughs> yeah, that's... Yeah, so uh, it was always exciting. That, that was another thing about the comedy store at the time. It was uh, because, you know, there weren't so many venues. That's where... And it was open very late. That's where all the comedians used to congregate there for the late show and, you know, stand at the bar comparing notes on what they'd done and, you know, heckling the comedians sometimes. But I always remember thinking, you know that, what's that phrase they have now? M-O-M-O, no, FOMO, fear of missing out, which I think we all experience sometimes. But I always remember thinking as I was about to go on at midnight on the comedy store, that was like, I thought, this is the place in the world I want to be. Yeah. And then... uh, Kim Kinney, who used to do the sound and was also instrumental in the comedy store, used to put on my uh, my uh, entry number, which I've now forgotten what the fuck it was. I was about to sing it. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> you touched on it, and we're going to go back to it, like you said. So, obviously, one of the main targets of your generation was, like you've said, Margaret Thatcher, right? Yeah. Not only did she divide the national opinion, but in terms of comedy, this naturally created diversions between traditional and alternative comedy. Looking back, right, what effect did it have on the output at this time, and how did this change the comedy landscape? Well, like I say, it was very much a divide between, you know, and all the old school comedians tended to be in favour of Mrs Thatcher, you know, the Bernard Mannings and the Jim Davidsons and the... Whereas we all resolutely weren't. In fact, the ghost of Mrs. Thatcher, I believe, is in here this afternoon. <laughs> Mrs. Thatcher, can you just tell us what you thought about alternative oh, yeah. comedy? It wasn't very funny. <laughs> <laughs> it was, yeah, people used to say little jokes about Margaret Thatcher. What is the difference <laughs> between Margaret Thatcher <laughs> and a pint of milk? <laughs> but I got the joke wrong. It was all about that oh, Mrs. Thatcher doesn't have to pay for yogurt. All she has to do is get a pint of milk and stare at it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't find it funny. <laughs> a round of applause for the ghost of Mrs. Thatcher. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. It does. Uh, I, I suspect some of you may realise who that is. <laughs> that is Steve, who was the. He, you were Thatcher for how long were you? A long time. You must have been pissed off though, in a way, when she <laughs> lost her power because I suppose you got less work. <laughs> well, Mrs. Thatcher never had a sense of humour. No, no. <laughs> I think that's sort of something in common with all kind of right-wingers and dictators. I mean, I really don't think Donald Trump has just got absolutely zero sense of humour. And, you know, he's like a failed stand-up in a way. And as I understand it, Mussolini did a spot at the comedy store once and died, died on his fucking ass. And then Hitler, I mean, he st- I mean, in my opinion, all these dictators, there's two reasons why you get dictators. One is because they can't get a booking at the comedy store. And the other one, since they're nearly always men, it's because they're quite short and women don't want to fuck them. And <laughs> rightly so. But that makes them decide to become dictators instead. You know, they'll refer you to, you know, Stalin couldn't get his leg over, Pol Pot, no, hopeless. <laughs> Mussolini never shagged anyone. Anyone here shag Mussolini? <laughs> I think we've got Kenneth Williams is here as well, isn't he? <laughs> I'll, I'll come next week. All right. <laughs> I guess what sets you apart from your contemporary... Uh, contemporaries is the passion or your passion to study all forms of comedy right so to well what i don't extent... know if that's true i mean i'm not really known for my slapstick work or my <laughs> mime or really yeah <laughs> yeah but i was going to say to what extent has that influenced your own act because whether you I mean you say you with the slapstick you don't do it but you've obviously studied it because you know what it is so for what you have studied how has that like influenced well, your own act well, it doesn't really. I mean, I come on and talk. I'm not really bothered about how I'm walking about. But that, that, but it, for some people, it is. I mean, if you look at someone like Lee Evans, you yeah. know, it's like he's acting out every joke. And, uh, you know, and it, it, that's always a decision you have to make. Do you stand with the microphone in the middle? Do you wander about the stage? Do you, do you have a headset, which means you don't have a... I mean, I like a mic stand myself. But, uh, you know, you could have a headset and then, you know, you can just wave your arms around as much as much as you like. Oh, I've got a little belch. <laughs> I enjoyed that. <laughs> going back to, sorry, I was going to say, going back to Edinburgh as well, you made your debut in 1977, right? Yeah. So arguably, you've become uh, synonymous with, Edin- with the Edinburgh Fringe and enjoy a long association going back over 40 years. Why does the Edinburgh Fringe remain such a pivotal, uh, yeah, pivotal rite of passage for upcoming comedians? Well, it, you know, it's it's the biggest arts festival in the world. It's the Edinburgh Festival, and, and that's divided into the the fringe, the fringe, and then the, the jazz festival, the film festival, the TV festival, blah blah blah. And it is the biggest arts festival in the world, and it's it's a great playground of the imagination. I mean, when we started going there, it was when I started going, it was a bit like somewhere you try some new idea out, and the more radical it was, the better, in a way. Um, I mean, these days it tends to be a bit different in that comedians are, you know, doing previews in January, and they know exactly what their show is by the time they get to Edinburgh, whereas it was a bit like we were trying to find our way to the to the shows 
And Phil and I, yeah, we went up there with the national... Well, we weren't called that then, but we became the National Review Company. And that, and that was a, a sort of sketch show, and we had singing and dancing. There was no stand-up that year. There wasn't any stand-up till, I think, 1981, when I think Alexi went... Um, uh, and back then, but even then, it was a huge comedy event, the Fringe. And if you wanted to get some attention, that's where you went because all the you know the journalists were there and reviewers and TV people. So, and it remains the same. Although I, you know, I wonder how it's going to be. It's obviously been different the last two years, and I and it's broke my heart a bit not to be there the last two years. Uh, so I think it's going to have to change in ways that we don't quite know yet but I mean that's one of the great things about the Edinburgh Fringe is anyone can go most festivals you have to be asked to go and you're a professional probably and blah blah whereas anyone here if they want can uh, I mean it might cost you a couple of quid but you could just go and do a show you know your mum can anyone can and that's the great thing about the Edinburgh Festival, and it's a great playground of the imagination. And but as I say, I, I wonder how it will change after the pandemic and everything. And there've been, you know, there've been struggles along the way between, you know, like the big venues versus the the, and then there's the free comedy now ones where you just you know people put money in a hat at the end and. There's a kind of divide there that's that's growing, and uh, well, we shall see. So, with that, then, what do you think that the comedy landscape would look like without Edinburgh? You know, you're, you're saying it needs. Well, to change. it wouldn't have Arthur's seat in the middle. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I suppose it would survive, but yeah, it'd be a bit like yeah, like Edinburgh without Arthur's seat. It'd be a bit flatter and less interesting. But uh, I, I think it'll probably stage a big comeback next year because people will miss being there. Part of the great thing about the Edinburgh Fringe is that it's just such a beautiful city, Edinburgh. Yeah. You know, it's the only city in Britain with a mountain in the middle of it. And, um, I've always, and of course, Arthur's Seat, which is named after me. Uh, <laughs> after I, you know, before, what was it called before I went up there, Phil? Um, yeah, Brian's seat, wasn't That's it? That's right, Brian's seat, yeah. <laughs> Captain Wanker's seat. <laughs> so tell us about your Edinburgh tours, mate. When, when, oh, when yeah, you yeah. Well, there was one year when, um, I think I was with you, Phil, when we, I think that was when I started, wasn't it? When we were doing, we were doing a double act and we were on, like, really late. Was it that year, like, mid-80s or... Um, yeah, we were on with John Dowie, a comedian who some people don't know anymore, but he was quite influential in the world of stand-up uh, alternative comedy. Uh, but we, you know, the nature of the show is that we weren't coming on stage till, like, midnight or something, so I kind of had nothing to do all day. I mean, I didn't go to other shows and whatnot. And it was recommended to me by the then Fringe director. What was his name? You remember, Phil? Alistair Alistair Moffat, yeah, who said to me, um, here, why don't you, like, try... You know, because there's always the guy... There's proper guided tours of the Royal Mile that start at the castle and then people point out various things and then knock things over. And um, so I took to, to... So that I didn't go to the pub too early because I was a bit of a boozer in those days. I took to doing little 
tours of the Royal Marble, I'd just made up the facts, you know, and I'd say, and up there is where, you know, Billy Bremner used to gobble off Billy Connolly, and uh, this is, where, you know, and I'd just make up shit, and then do things like get the audience, to, so I say there's a little uh, rule, old Edinburgh rule, you have to crawl the next bit. But anyway, after I'd done that for a bit, and they were quite fun, I uh, decided as a bit just to do one really late. So I think the first year was midnight or something. So I met at midnight, and then and I and then the following year it got later and later. And at the time, I was doing quite well, making quite a lot of money. So I mean, I never charged. I never have for them. And uh, I used to, I used to like pay people to take their clothes off and sing Scotland the Brave or uh, or to climb up. I've got ones that somewhere, I've seen film somewhere, of the Doug Anthony All-Stars where I paid them to climb up this scaffolding. And, I mean, looking back on it, it's a miracle I never killed anyone. <laughs> there was one incident where I, I paid a bloke, yeah, to take... I said, I'll give ten quid to the first bloke who gets up on this. And I was standing on a little balustrade just down the Royal Mile on a little kind of uh, panel thing. I, was, uh, I said, first, when he gets up here, he gets his top off and sings Scotland the Brave. So he did, and then I gave him a ten, and a woman heckled, saying, well, that's not fair. Well, you haven't offered about a woman. I said, well, all right then. So she then got up, took her top off, and sang Scotland the Brave. And it was only the next day I looked when I was coming back that this little, this little kind of balustrade, it was like a 40-foot drop behind it. <laughs> and they were both real... I mean, I was too pissed. Everyone was pissed. And like, oh, God, if, you know, if one of them had fallen back, they would definitely have probably... Well, almost certainly died. And then, Jesus, I'd have just felt guilty for the rest of my life. <laughs> and they got bigger and bigger. I mean, it's not so much now, these things. I'd have, like, 200 people and a megaphone, and they just got completely out of control. I remember one time... This is before Nelson Mandela was released. Uh, so... We, there was a little bit there, it's a little lock-up police station down the Royal there was then, and so we had about 150 pissed people turned up, and and then this little old Scottish copper who was <laughs> guarding the nick said, um, I said, he said, what, uh, what's going on here? Uh, you know, it's like three o'clock in the morning, load of drunk standing out, and I said, well, look, we've come, uh, we have, we've come here because we want to release Nelson Mandela. And he said, OK, I'll just let him out. He's in a little door round the side, <laughs> which everyone laughed at. So then we just moved on. But, uh, but of course, as, we, uh, as some of you will know, it, it, it did turn a bit too wild in the end. And um, I got arrested at the end of one of them. Uh, or rather, Simon Munnery got arrested first. This was because what I discovered is that some of you may have heard of a comedian called Malcolm Hardy who um, was a sort of legendary figure. But he, apparently, I learnt this subsequently, used to always ring the police at the start of my tours and say there's a lot of trouble going on down. So that, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the police would always, they always seemed to be police turning up. And, uh, and there was a bit of nudity at one of them or something. And anyway, at the end... Simon Munnery, when this copper came and Simon Munnery sort of, and he got arrested 
for um, resisting arrest, and they found a bit of cannabis in his pocket as well or something. So I then went down. I felt, well, this is terrible. I sh- if anyone's arrested at this, it should be me. So I went down to the police station and sat there uh, for waiting for Simon, and then uh, they came out and arrested me. Um, and I was charged with breach of the peace and possession of a megaphone. <laughs> uh, and uh, and I actually a year later I had to go to you know, you know we had to go to court where uh, where I just got a fine which I offered to pay but I still haven't paid it so I guess I am now a wanted man still in Edinburgh but I've got to say I'm very proud I think there's only me Lenny Bruce and Simon Munnery obviously who's been arrested at the end of a gig. <laughs> you know, none of your modern comedians have managed that. So feel free, if you want to... Arra- no, well, I've done it now, yeah. <laughs> so you debuted in 1977, right, and you've been going, like, yeah. every year since then? So have you managed to... Every year bar, well, the last well, two, and then two others I did go. So every year bar four since 1977, So yeah. how do you maintain the momentum for Edinburgh or, you know, going into Edinburgh? Well, because it, it's sort of... A, the, I always think of it, it's a bit like when you're at school, you know, you've got your exams, um, you know, that come up. It's a bit like, ah, yeah, Edinburgh's where you do your exam at the end of the year kind of thing, or where you, or even the start that you might think of it as, as, as your new thing. Uh, so... And it's just such a sublime place to be in. It's the only place to be in August. You know, it's too fucking hot in, in the south of France... And it's too boring in London because all the top people are in Edinburgh. It's just the the place to be. And, uh, I mean, I've done all sorts of ridiculous things. I did an art exhibition one year, Archer Art, where, um, you know, because I'd I'd come to the conclusion, you know, why why is art always so serious? You know, you never hear laughter in an art gallery, do you? So uh, we set, I did a load of sort of ridiculous pictures and I got a lot of other comedians to do them as well. Phil, you were there, weren't you? you were, what was it you were doing? Uh, I was the uh, secu- head of security. That's right. <laughs> and you, you were guarding some sort of feeble watercolour by me as though it was worth <laughs> like eight million quid or something. Not too close. Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> it's like the... Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's just a great place, Edinburgh, to try a new idea and... Yeah, the, the, and, you know, that's where I did the outdoor t- shows. I think that's the thing that will happen a bit more, more out, outdoor shows, especially because you're not, that's not so likely to get a, get the COVID if you're out and about, are you? And it's just such a fabulous landscape, Edinburgh. I did another one where I took, I took a coachload of people out, which is about sort of 10 miles out of Edinburgh to do, uh, but then, to do, and I had various people set up. I had a woman on a horse, and you know, and someone sinking in a well, and all sorts awaiting them. But then, when we got there, it turned out this coach couldn't go up the mile track, and I had, and so we couldn't really get there. So we just went to the local pub. Uh, where they had a big garden, and I got all the uh, performers to come and do this. Then we just did it in the back garden of a pub and one afternoon when there was just, like, two blokes propping up the bar, and suddenly there was, like, 200 people <laughs> and naked people on horses, and uh, <laughs> it was that was a splendid afternoon. In 2018, right, you dedicated your Edinburgh show to your dad, Sid, who passed yeah. away in 2004. Now, as a comedian, do you believe that performing can often be a type of therapy? 
Oh, undoubtedly. I think that's one of the trends that's come more and more in uh, recent years, actually. People often are on stage talking about their mental health issues or or pers- very much more personal the, uh, things. Yeah, and because well, I did a show uh, a few six or seven years ago about my my mother's uh, descent into dementia, which doesn't sound like a lot of laughs, but um, but actually you can find laughter in often even the most tragic moments and. Uh, yeah, and the show about my dad, because he led a quite a... You know, he was in the war. He had a hell of a war. He was uh, captured at the Battle of El Alamein, and then he was uh, worked as slave labour down a copper mine in Saxony, and then he ended the war in Colditz Castle uh, as a prisoner. And, uh, and I took him back to Colditz when he was 70, because uh, I knew he was intrigued to see it again, and I knew I'd finally get to ask him... How did he end up as a German prison guard in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the gags from the show. Yeah. And my father, actually, I mean, in some sense, I've inherited the humour. My father was a very funny man, and when he retired, we got him to write... You know, he had all these stories about... And he was a copper as well on the beat. Um, and we had, and we got him to write all these stories down in a book. And I'm, you know, I'm using bits of that because, you know, he had a real kind of good eye for a for a punchline. And uh, he was just a, a very, and I was lucky. He was a gentle, nice man. He was, he was a nice copper. He was the only copper who, at the time who was against the death penalty, and he voted Labour. <laughs> and the, the other coppers used to call him the poet because of this. <laughs> But uh, it's funny, at the moment, all the terrible business about that poor woman uh, getting raped and murdered by that policeman. And, and there's no, my dad would have been appalled by that and he would have hated that man, I can tell you that. And there are police who are, you know, I think there's a lot of police who are decent. You've also said as well that the role of a writer is to kill the cliché, right? What, what did you mean by this? <laughs> well, I suppose... Uh, so not to do the obvious thing or use the obvious line. I mean, that's the, uh, you know, invert the cliché or translate it into French. Uh, but any writer wants to have their own voice. So, um, you know, and if you, if, you, if you just use a load of clichés, then you're not going to find your own voice, are you? And uh, it's always a question of trying to find new ways of saying things rather than just repeating the old clichés, although that in itself has become a kind of cliché in itself, hasn't it? <laughs> Kill the cliché, yeah. Someone else said that, didn't they? Anyway. All right, I wanna, um, I'd like to, if you don't mind, like delve into the radio, obviously, you know, like yeah. your radio career and stuff. So uh, there's a, obviously... The, a demographic of people who will forever associate you with Radio 4 show Excess Baggage and Loose Ends, right? Yeah. What's the secret of your radio domination? <laughs> domination? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, uh, I'm, not, I'm not dominating it at the moment because Excess Baggage got, uh, got sacked and replaced by, uh, what's her name? Who's na- in fact, I'm not going to remember her name. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and uh, loose ends, although yeah, loose ends. I mean, that's all I do really. On, I mean, when I first used to do loose ends, it was um, it was the great Ned Sherin, who some of you older ones will remember, who was a wonderful host. And we were, I was a bit like the naughty Cockney schoolboy to his rather posh headmaster, 
And then there were the, the women guests on it tended to be quite posh. In fact, they had Mrs. Thatcher's daughter on it. What's her name? Carol, yeah, she was she was on it one time, and Lady Victoria Harvey. I think it was the idea of it was it was East End boys, West End girls, and East End boys. So I was on with like Robert Elms, and and then the women were all the posh ones. Mrs. Yeah, Carol Thatcher. I remember arriving at BH once, broadcasting house, and we were both checking in, and the bloke, and it was when that Mrs. Thatcher was Prime Minister, and uh, the bloke said, "What's your name?" I said, "Smith." And he wrote it down. And then he, she, he said, what's your name? Thatcher. And he said, how do you spell that? <laughs> <laughs> I thought, good on him. Uh, but, and, but when I first did that, I used to go off and do ridiculous things. We had a bit more of a budget then. I mean, you don't get the budgets now at the BBC. But I'd go off and like go to the like World Sandwich Finals or something and, and report on uh, ridiculous things and then come back... But now it's just I just interview people. In fact, I'm on um, uh, a week. To, what is today? Saturday. Yeah, a week today interviewing Miriam Margulies, <laughs> and that was another show actually, which I, which in a way, a radio show I did six series of in the nineties called Sentimental Journey, where I went off to a place with a, a guest, a, a, you know, some well-known person who had some connection, they might have grown up there or, you know. So I, I went with um, I went with Arthur Scargill to Havana. I went with Jermaine Greer to Calabria. I mean, I just did loads of it. Barbara Castle, anyone remember her? I spent a wonderful uh, couple of days with her in Pontefract, where she's from. <laughs> Val Dunican in Copenhagen. <laughs> There, there were just loads of ridiculous adventures I had going off. And, I, you know, because what it, it's a, it was a great idea because if you go back to somewhere you know from years ago, you suddenly get all these memories. And, uh, you know, I remember having a wonderful time with Dennis Healy. In uh, We went to um, Naples where he'd been in the war as, you know, he'd been part of the, the what do they call it, the, the invasion. At, where was it? Anyway... And then he'd gone there on his honeymoon with his wife. And we, we just had a fucking great few days. And with Miriam Margulies, we went to Belarus. Yeah, which is... Yeah, so I think I'm the only... Well, me and the producer, the only people in the world who can say, I went to Belarus with Miriam Margulies. <laughs> and she was fucking great. She had a T-shirt on the whole time we were there a week with shit happens written on it. And then... Um, and we were there because her her antecedents, had, or one of her, on one side of her family, her great grandmother or grandmother had come from there, and because they were Jewish, they'd been. And we went back, and uh, I always remember there was a, a woman there whose husband had been the last Jew in this little little village where uh, Miriam's great grandmother was from, and um, you know, and she lived in this grotty little place. And we went and interviewed her. And then when we were leaving, Miriam gave her £500 in cash as just as a sort of present. And I always remember standing at her husband's grave weeping, saying, oh, I wish you could see this, because obviously 500 quid in 1980s or 90s to, in Belarus was worth about 20 grand or something. Now, Miriam is a... yeah. Anyways, I've banged on about Sentimental Journey quite a lot. But that, that was the favourite of all the radio shows I've done. And, but like I say, there's no way they'd make that now because the budgets, you know, we used to... Fly. I went to, you know, I took, went with Ronnie Scott to New York for four days. 
and uh, Malcolm Bradbury to Indiana. And oh, and Stephanie Cole to India. We went to Kerala, and um, uh, like I say, they wouldn't have the budget for that sort of thing now. And anyway, you know, no, you're not meant to fly anymore, really. <laughs> I haven't flown for ooh, coming up two years now, but um, yeah, but I, I was privileged to be able to do those shows, and they weren't particularly comedy, although there was always some comic element. But they were really, really exciting things to do. Yeah, Arthur Scargill, though he. I just remember the producer telling me we were in Havana because he'd had some connection because of the miners with the miners in, in Cuba. And uh, I always remember um, apparently when when I left, he always used to put his hand on the, sk- the skirt of the poor producer woman and whatnot. And there were a few of those types around then in those days. And uh, I'm glad that doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> I, I would have put a skirt on if I knew that <laughs> in 2000 right, you secured your own BBC Radio 2 show entitled The Smith Lectures oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, presiding over classic stand up routines and some of yeah. Britain's greatest comedians for this you embodied the role of a lecturer and a teacher so in what ways did this help you educate the audiences about the art of stand up <laughs> well, I don't think my intention was to educate you audience about the art of it. It was just to introduce funny clips, to be honest. Uh, yeah, and I was, what was I? I was Professor Arthur Smith of the University of Tooting Beck Special Rates for Cash uh, Humour Department. And uh, it was just a kind of conceit for introducing a lot of interesting old clips. Although, funny enough, I mean, there are genuinely now... Uh, comedy courses and things at university. You know, at Kent University, there's a guy called Oliver Double, I think it is, who's kind of you know he, he's researched comedy and he's and there's and there's even like stand-up comedy courses and whatnot. In fact, there's an American one. They came over here and I introduced. You know, I got all their students to. I compared some gig at the Angel in Islington. Uh, where all these like eighteen-year-old Americans who were so excited to be doing a, a, a you know stand-up in front of uh, a bunch of people in London, uh, but uh, yeah, so Professor Arthur Smith, but yeah, the Radio Two one went as well. I'm afraid. So the next question, like delving back into it, right? So your generation of comedians has always struggled to gain legendary status just because of the chronological order in which Britain celebrates comedy. Right. To what extent have the past few years helped you reach such an iconic status within the world of comedy? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's a sort of progression if you keep going as long as I have. You know, you're a beginner and then you're uh, regular and then uh, veteran and then uh, then you then eventually become a legend <laughs> and then eventually you're who? <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I think that's true of uh, of every profession, really. I mean, I, I think it's partly because I'm still doing it. I, funny enough, I was chatting with Steve there about uh, I probably you know, there's not many comedians, Alexi, uh, but there's not many comedians of you know of our type who've been going as long as me. So I suppose it's partly just the longevity and the fact that, you know, I'm nearly 107 years old. <laughs> and my first gig was when I was 22, so work that out. 85 years, so... 
but hey, I'll be dead soon, and then there'll be someone else. <laughs> I'll tell you what, we're going to ask you, we've got a few more questions left of the interview, but before we do that, I'm going to just let you lot know now, we're going to open the, open the questions up to you lot in just a, a few moments, so if there's any questions that you can think of, then feel free, we'll open up. We've got some that's been sent in uh, and printed out and stuff, so we'll, we'll mix it up, so if there's any questions that you've got, feel free to ask. Um, but what I do want to go into is that, obviously, you said that your dad was a massive influence within yourself. Um, and within your comedy, and you've just written a memoir based on your late father's experience of Colditz. Is, is it? Is that pronounced right? Colditz. Colditz. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what did this teach you about your dad, and to what extent did this change your perception on the Second World War? <laughs> Blowing me. Uh, well, the Second World War, I uh, actually I do a bit of a spot, uh, a bit of stand-up where I say. I've arrived at an age now where I'm able to persuade young people that I fought in the Second World War. <laughs> as far as my 15-year-old nephew Tom is concerned, in 1942 I was parachuted into occupied France, <laughs> where I spent six months undercover as Jacques de Boulanger. <laughs> no, but, uh, well, I don't know. There's, I mean, it, it's interesting now, the, the Second World War... Of course, for some of us, for those of people of my age, that was like the huge event that had happened before before we were born. And, you know, if you, your dad had been in the war, that was like a real plus. And if someone's dad hadn't been in the war, then they were a fucking wanker. <laughs> uh, and also, I suppose then, because that was the, the huge event, and, and we won, you know. In my head, it was like, yeah, that was it. And we won, and now everything's getting better. I think... I think that was true of those of us who were baby boomers. We were brought up in a time when, you know, the National Health Service had come in. That, you know, yeah, the bomb sites were being built on and there was slowly, you know, rationing had ended. Slowly things were getting better and better. And, and I think we were... And we didn't have to fight in a war like our parents and grandparents did. And so I feel a bit sorry for, for younger people now, for for whom that can't be the feeling that they have in their mind because, you know, there's global warming and, and more and more division and, um, and, you know, the huge population of the world, that, you know, and so many problems and, that face us in the future, whereas you know, us baby boomers growing up, it was all, hey, everything's getting better. So I think we were, you know, we're probably the... And we fucked it all for the young people now as well, it would seem. But, so uh, I can't remember whatever your question was, but that's what I seem to be saying. <laughs> that's fine. Go and, like, you said you started at 22. Oh, yeah, that was the other thing I was going to think, you know, the, the whole Brexit thing. There's a lot of these, you know... In a, like I was saying, you know, yeah, everything was better, but all the Brexiteers, it's a bit like they just want to... They have nostalgia for the chocolate bars of their youth, and they somehow think, like, Nigel Farage is obsessed with the Second World War, I gather, and they all secretly want to be, yeah, like, the, yeah, we won the war and we're the best in England, in Britain, and fuck everybody else. And that is a, a dangerous thing. My father, may I say, was all in favour of the European Union. And, you know, as far as he was concerned, the last... You know, these two world wars of the 20th century both began within Europe, and it would probably be better if we were all friends. And uh, so, 
Yeah, but you, you Brexiteer dudes love to a, a wank over the wall, there's no doubt. <laughs> that and a blue passport, obviously. <laughs> sovereignty, innit? I want me fucking sovereign. Anyone got any? <laughs> I want to smoke some sovereignty. <laughs> I was just going to say that before. Like, that you, you said you started at 22, started comedy at 22. Well, no, I started when I was six in Captain Hook. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I suppose it depends what you mean by start. I mean, Phil and I, uh, with the, the rest of us, we went up to, I was, what was I, yeah, 20, yeah, I must have been 22 then when we went up to uh, Edinburgh for the first time. So I suppose so, yeah, but I didn't, I didn't become professional until I was sort of 30. But, you know, so I had a lot of, used to do gigs in the, I was in a band as well for a bit. But we used to do, like, gigs in the evening and then work all day. And then I always remember one time when we got a review in The Guardian when we were doing the review show, and I thought, wow, we've got a review in The Guardian. Oh, well, oh, fuck it, I'll give up the other job and go pro. Because, yeah, the, the question I was going to ask is, you know, from 22 or from 6 from Captain Hook, but what is it, what is the appeal of live comedy for you? Like, Well, it, it's in the moment, isn't it? And it's... Uh, it's laughter is the one true metaphysical consolation, as uh, Anthea Turner once remarked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but listen to that. We've all shared a moment. And we're, the other thing about I always think laughter is such a strange thing. It's sort of, um, I mean, it's the closest we ever come to sounding like chimpanzees or something, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? <laughs> And of, course, and of course, it's involuntary. Well, unless you're trying to, you know, butter someone up and pretending to laugh at their shit jokes, but um, but it's involuntary, you know. And you, the fact is, you want, you pay people to go and, and watch them so that you can make that funny noise. Whereas other things that that are involuntary, like farting or belching, you don't pay someone to make you belch, do you? Or to fart. Mind you, actually, having said that, uh, Miriam Margulies is good at farting. <laughs> and there are, of course, great farting acts, aren't there? The famous Petal Man, supposedly, used to be able to fart the Marseillaise. And he, apparently, you could hear the laughter 20 miles away when he was on stage, they used to say. And it's still a thing, actually. They still have... A, Mr Methane is a comedy farter. Yeah, and Britain's Got Talent. Oh, has he been on there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, they, I think they have a sort of world farting, comedy <laughs> farting championships. I think there is something like that, isn't there? Anyone confirm that? No. <laughs> right, we're, gonna, uh, we're coming towards the end, so we're going to ask one more question and then we're going to open up to the audience. But looking back at your career, what is your proudest achievement? I mean, with everything that you've spoken about and so much that you've done in... You know, well, I think I think in, in some body. ways it's the the alternative tours I've done because I think I kind of that was something no one's quite done anything like them and some of them were there was one I did uh, this was during the day where I, I I took some people from the Pleasants in Edinburgh and I ended it at the foot of. Um, at the foot of Arthur's seat, and unbeknownst to the audience, uh, oh, it was supposed to be Swan Lake, and I'd had a bit of ballet dancing and whatnot, and <laughs> but uh, I ended it, and I recited this poem, and, and at the end of which, on the queue, I had six ballet dancers pretty much on the top of Arthur's seat, 
so, and they looked up, and there were these ballet dancers dancing. And I thought, you know, that it was a joke that must have been about, you know, half a mile away. But it was a kind of magical moment. There's, there's, you know, there's lots of little moments when something unexpected happens and you just feel, wow, yeah. I remember when I, I did a version of Hamlet in the mid-90s. It was a time when I was quite depressed myself and I kind of thought, well, that's the kind of gag, you know, the comedian who wants to be Hamlet. So I sort of did a version and and, uh, and the, I only had one tryout in Bath for which I'd hired a duck. Well, that's another story. But <laughs> fucking duck's really expensive to hire, I can tell you. It's much more expensive than an actor. And it doesn't take any fucking direction. <laughs> I wanted it to flap about there, but it didn't do it. It ran around and it got all the attention and, you know, never worked with children and animals. But anyway, so when I finally did it in Edinburgh, and it kind of just suddenly clicked and I got this last little speech... And at the end, and there was a sort of silence, and then woof, you know, the audience went crazy. And I walked out the back of the venue thinking, yeah, and then I slipped over on a banana skin and fell on the ground. And it just seemed like the kind of funniest moment. I don't think anyone's ever really slipped on a banana skin apart from that. <laughs> and it was just, uh, I don't know, there were there are moments where, where you're absolutely in the moment and the laughter is sounding, and it's about the most alive you can feel. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Right, so there we go. So I'm going to uh, open up. Have we got any, any questions from the audience? I've got some printed out here, but feel free if you want to. Don't ask. worry if you haven't. I'm really gagging for a fag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got a question? What's your name, sir? My name's Richard. Yes, Richard, Richard does a podcast. Thank you. Yes, yeah, my, my blog and podcast. I've seen in the last 45 years, I've seen well over a thousand standard comedians, and I've seen you many times. Um, like me, do you go and watch a lot of live comedy? Or? Well, I mean, by virtue of the fact, well, not so much now, but when I used to MC a lot, you just always see all, you know, you just, I saw, I've seen, yeah, probably hundreds, certainly, probably thousands of stand up comedians. Uh, over the years, yeah. I mean, uh, to be honest, these days I wouldn't. I'd rather go and see, a, you know, a Shakespeare or a, a, a or a new play probably than see uh, see a stand up. Because it's partly because I kind of, you know, famously stand up comedians are the worst audience for a stand up comic. You know, because <laughs> a you don't. A, you sort of know, you can sort of see the gag coming, and B, you don't really want them to be funnier than you anyway, so <laughs> fuck them, I'm not going to laugh. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I've seen pretty much every comedian you can think of one way or another over the years. Right, so, thank you very much. So is it, is it Richard Gill, is it? Yeah. Okay, so you've got another question that I'm going to ask in a, in a second, or you can ask it yourself. But um, uh, Paul, Paul Brimble, is Paul Brimble in? Right, so I'm going to ask you a question, Paul. Uh, Paul's asked, do you regret stealing the ref's glasses in the infamous football game for charity in 2010? <laughs> <laughs> well remembered. Yeah, well, uh, no, because I got sent off. And I, I thought it was funny getting sent off. Uh, yeah, they always steal the ref's glasses. Well, they shouldn't really have re referees with glasses, to be honest. Uh, what was the other? I had another incident when I, I was... Bre I was once on... Um, 
when it started out, whose line is it anyway? And that won some award, or, you know, it won a BAFTA or something. And there was a party to celebrate. They invited everyone who'd been, been at the, in the show. So I went along, and just before I left, I stole the award, which was out on display, <laughs> which I thought was a good gag, because it was like, you know, it was a show for improvised comedy, and I had improvised away the award for it. But then all hell broke loose the next day, and uh, Dan Patterson, the producer of it, went fucking spare and started accusing, I think it was Tony Slattery of stealing it. But in the end, so in the end, I deposited it at the at the front desk of the Guardian office with a note saying it had been, uh, you know, stolen by... Uh, oh, this is an old reference to the night... It was a dog that found the World Cup in... Pickles, that was it. And then it was a story in the Guardian the next day. But, uh, yeah, I probably shouldn't have nicked that. <laughs> but my career as a, as a thief has never... You know, I've always, <laughs> I always get caught, you know. I mean, I've tried to nick your uh, your credit cards, but I failed. Nothing on me. We can have. A <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, Simon is Simon Wild in Simon Simon Wild. No, okay. Well, we, he, he sent through five questions, right? So he's a, he's really keen. Um, so one of them, and one of the questions that Simon's asked is, could you perform the naked fairy dance tonight? <laughs> <laughs> is that you mean the Malcolm Hardy one? Is that the, the, the that was the yeah I could but it's not tonight so I'm not going to <laughs> fuck that I want to go and get some oysters <laughs> right. right and I'm going to leave in the final question Richard you you got a question on there do you want me to ask it or do you want to ask it uh, if you could ask it yeah of course right so Richard's ask can you remember who no almost <laughs> certainly not can't remember fucking anything <laughs> can you remember who was on your first ever comedy bill and what was the year. <laughs> <laughs> Well, obviously not, but let's say uh, my first ever comedy bit. Well, it was at the Hemingford Arms in Islington, where I started emceeing. Oh, I'll tell you, it was Dilly Keane in uh, Fascinating Aida, Jenny Eclair, uh, Jenny Lacote, uh, and there was, that's right, there was a, do you remember in film, there was a, a French sort of mime artist called Daniel Reveille, and I've often wondered what became of him, you know, and he, he just disappeared. Like, you know, like, like, I mean, if you saw the names on bills from 40 years ago, you probably wouldn't recognise two-thirds of them, and then a few of them would be dead, and then the other one would be me. <laughs> <laughs> right, so the final question that we all want to know is, uh, what is next for Arthur Smith? Uh, what is next is I've uh, decided to work in Tesco's <laughs> and become an HGV driver. <laughs> what is next? Uh, yeah, good question. I've got, I've got a couple of ideas I'm dreaming about. One is uh, where I, I take the audience to Paris for the weekend, or, you know, in an imaginary way, and teach them French, which would... Uh, which would Kind of because partly you know we've got so used to not going anywhere over the last couple of years it quite might be nice it'd be cheaper than actually paying to go you just buy a ticket for my show and I teach you French as well because I as I say you know I used to teach in I kind of know about it's interesting uh, teaching English actually that's another idea I've got about a, a conversation class but if you're teaching English to foreigners I, I'm I'm amused by. The, what we call a phrasal verb in English 
is utterly confusing to anyone trying to learn English. Because, you know, a phrasal verb is something that is where it's two words. There's the normal verb and then a preposition. So it'd be like, take off. And that can mean about three different things. You know, take off your trousers, uh, take something. Uh, well, it's better off, turn up. You know, you can turn up your trousers, you can turn up at something. You can turn up your nose. You can, you know, turn down. I mean, there's about ten different meanings, all just based around, say, turn, for example. Yeah, turn on, turn up, turn down, turn off, turn away. Uh, there's so... And it, if you're trying to learn English, it is fucking confusing. <laughs> However, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to teach you... Does anyone want to learn French and go to Paris with me? Yeah. I oh, will, yeah. yeah. Très bien. Alors, je vous attends à l'aéroport. No, we'll get the, the Eurostar. <laughs> Right. Um, well, that's all, all the questions. The only thing that, from myself personally, you know, being a comedian, you know, I'm a massive fan, and obviously, well, thank myself. you, Phil, um, and thank you, Josh, as well for organising. A round of applause yeah. for Josh. Well, thank you. I think I think what I would like as well, like I said, being a big fan, we're all big fans, which is why we're here this afternoon. We've got to know the person behind the act. Would you do us the honour of just closing off the show and just giving us <laughs> ten minutes of your act of the person that we know and love that we've seen on stage for years and years? No. <laughs> <laughs> but I will do... I will do, I don't know, six minutes. Yeah, we can do six minutes. Are we all up for six minutes? Yes. Right, OK, then. I'll, I'll give you an introduction. I'll just take a step over, over there. Uh, I'll stand up and start, shall I? Or do you want to introduce me? Make it formal. Can I, can I, can I have the honour of introducing yeah, yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Right, OK, OK, here we go then. Right, we're, we're going to do it. Right, ladies and gentlemen, are we all up for this? Yes! Six minutes of comedy gold, ladies and gentlemen. Please put your hands together. Go wild, go crazy. For the legend, who is Arthur Smith! Yes. So, a man goes to the doctor... <laughs> And he says, I can't say my THs or Fs. The doctor says, well, you can't say fairer than that then. <laughs> a man goes to the doctor. <laughs> and uh, the doctor says, bad news now. He says, I'm afraid you've got Alzheimer's and you've got cancer. Oh, well, he says, at least I haven't got Alzheimer's. <laughs> or cancer. <laughs> Actually, like I said, I did do a, a show about my mother's um, descent, as it were, into dementia. And uh, she lives in a home near me now. And I, in a way, though, I'm quite jealous of her because she doesn't know about the pandemic or Boris fucking Johnson or any of that, or global warming. She's just in, you know, she's in some imagining, or some world, you know, in her head it's still VE Day, 1945 or something. And when I went to visit her recently... Uh, we were watching the news, and I said, oh, what a terrible world we live in. And she said, yes, I would hate it. <laughs> but uh, a man goes to the doctor. <laughs> now, actually, some of you, uh, I'm sure most of you here tonight know me, or this afternoon know me, but uh, some of you may not know. You, you might have seen me recently in the TV series The Crown, where I played Princess Margaret. <laughs> Or you might remember me as the voice of the woman's stomach in the Yakult ad. 
Oh, you might have seen me in that show on TV recently. I don't know if you saw it. Celebrity dogging. <laughs> I don't know if you saw it. There was me, Stan Collymore, some bloke from EastEnders, hanging around in a car park on the outskirts of Wolverhampton. And every now and again, one has to get in the back of a car and have sex with a woman with a bag over her head who turned out to be Anne Widdicombe. <laughs> <laughs> Or, uh, yeah, what is that? Oh, yeah, by the way, is there anyone here uh, tonight called uh, Steve? Oh, yeah, it's, actually, I know. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, I, I once spent, um, it's a bit in my show I do about my dad and about the Blitz, because uh, uh, I once spent three hours on a train. You were there, weren't you, Phil, with Kenneth Williams? Oh, no, it was Adam, yeah. Uh, and that, that was the great comedian Kenneth Williams, and uh, he told me that the only time he'd ever felt sexually fulfilled was during the Blitz, which is quite interesting because it was dark. And But anyway, uh, I asked him if he'd come, even though he's dead, if he might pop along to this show this afternoon, the ghost of Kenneth Williams. And uh, I have reason to believe it. Are you here, Kenneth? <laughs> yeah, give a round of applause for. Actually, uh, Kenneth Williams, in a way, he was a brilliant man. But this time, when this time I was on the train, I think Stephen tell you this: he was quite, you know, he, he was a sad man in lots of ways. He wanted to be with a, was a grand actor or writer or something. And although he was absolutely brilliantly funny in that kind of camp way. He didn't think anything of that, and it, it was it's true. There's a lot of comedians who are, are quite depressive uh, people. Uh, this isn't a stand-up routine now. This is <laughs> this is some kind of observation. <laughs> well, I give you a bit of Shakespeare, actually, <laughs> from the time. Yeah, I'll give you the classic: talky or not talky. That is not Wrexham. <laughs> Wigan tis Newcastle upon Tyne to Suffolk the Hastings and Harrow of outrageous Morecambe <laughs> or to take Barnes against the Sea at Peebles and by opposing Eltham <laughs> as you know I'm now suddenly remembered I used to do this is sort of vaguely random this is uh, thing I used to do yeah probably in the 80s or 90s I used to do the uh, the socialist lord's prayer uh, our father Mother, single parent family, who art in heaven or indeed any other gay nightclub. <laughs> Janet, be thy name. Thy kingdom come, preferably into a condom. <laughs> thy will be done on friends of the earth as it was under an Aaron Bevan. <laughs> give us this day our daily wholemeal bread and give, give us our bus passes. As we, those who go for, for never wear leather, our men will not be allowed at the meeting, but will be running the crash outside. <laughs> <laughs> go on, I haven't done that for about 25 years. <laughs> right, I'm just going to, uh, I'm just going to uh, leave you now. I'm going to nip out for a fag once I've come off. I'm really, unfortunately, I'm a bit addicted. Uh, I wrote a book about, I bought a book about addiction once, and I liked it so much, I bought another one. <laughs> anyway, uh, 
I'm uh, uh, just a couple of bits for some advice. If at first you don't succeed, then skydiving's not for you. <laughs> and if ever you're arrested, as I have been, I've got. I was told this by a solicitor. In fact, this is true. That Dex told me this. He said, uh, "Always say to the arresting officer, it's a fair cop, Gov. I've been done up like a kipper, bang to rights, and no mistake." <laughs> And then when the copper has to read this out in court the next morning. <laughs> and always remember the words of Lothian Council. Tuesdays and Fridays are rubbish days. <laughs> yeah. All right, that'll do. I'm going out for a fag. I'll see you. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Steve. There we go, ladies and gentlemen. What a way to finish off our very first Beyond the Title live show with the one and only Mr. Arthur Smith. <laughs> Thank you so, so much, ladies and gents, for coming down and supporting, obviously, supporting the, the, the show and the podcast. Obviously, if there's any, we've got the book outside. We can, yeah. if you want it, would you like to purchase the book, other bits of merchandise as well. But once again, ladies and gents, from myself, I have been your host for Beyond the Title. But more importantly, we've given Arthur a great big round of applause. Please give the man that started all this, Josh Barry, give him a great big round of applause. Thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. From myself, from Josh, from all the team here at Beyond the Title Live. Thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you liked this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy. Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates on forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time.